Good morning. If you're uh, visiting with us this morning, welcome. And uh, I'm, my name is Michael Creech. I'm not the preaching pastor here at Woodridge, but I'm one of the missionaries sent out by this church. My family and I serve in Senegal, West Africa, but it's a, it's a joy to be here with you this morning and, and to share with you the word. No doubt if you were here during the first song, you saw the cute kids waving palm branches as they walked by and we sing. We do this in remembrance of Palm Sunday, a remembrance of when Jesus came with his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And as people held him as king, they waved palm branches in the air. They put their garments on the ground before him. And they said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Of course, we, we know that at the end of that week, the Jews would no longer welcome Jesus into Jerusalem as their king, but crucify him amongst the thieves. And it makes me wonder if some of those same people who were there on, on Sunday who welcomed him as king were some of those same people, the ones in the crowd that rejected him and cried, crucify him on Friday. And then pondering that, it also makes me ponder if some of us here, if, that we just sang praises to God and held him as king later as we go on from this place throughout the week, will any of us then deny Christ? Last week, Pastor Luke from read, read from John chapter 8, where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he tells them that they rejected him because they were of their father the devil. Jesus says, if God were your father, you would have loved me, but instead they were doing the deeds of their father the devil. And so likewise, on Good Friday, those who would demand the life of Jesus Christ crucify him, they were ultimately doing the works of their father, the devil. But we know that God was not caught off guard by that. We know by Romans chapter 5 that Jesus went willingly to the cross when we were yet enemies of God. Backstabbers who might yell, Hell, the king, the coming king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Sunday, yet crucify him on Friday. He died for us in that state. But I want to get ahead of myself. That's not the sermon we're preaching this week. Um, but I invite you to come back um, on our Good Friday service this Friday and for the next week, Sunday service on Easter. I invite you back for that. But let's go ahead and pray, and I'll get to this week's sermon. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us, Lord. We thank you that you are king. We thank you, Lord, because there is no greater king that we could ever hope to have. We thank you because you are fully righteous. You are holy. You are just. You are good. There is no one more deserving of the throne. And so, God, we thank you for who you are. And, God, I pray that you would help us to live truthfully in light of the knowledge of you as king. I pray that you would help us display that truth in our lives, that you are king. So God, pray that every word proceeding out of my mouth this morning would be in subject of that, in subject to the king. May they seek to give you glory. May I be in submission to the Holy Spirit this morning as I bring your word forward. And God, we pray for those in the church body who are sick, I pray that you would provide healing, be it the flu, a, a cold, or something far more terminal and saddening. I pray that you would be sustaining them. 
And I pray that we would find our hope and our joy in the person of Jesus Christ. In your name I pray, amen. <clears throat> this morning we're going to continue through the sermon series through the book of 1 John. <clears throat> but as we do that, I want to keep some of that, those thoughts that I just mentioned of us ultimately doing the works of our Father. That, that theme is going to continue through into this sermon. And otherwise, we've seen in the, the book of 1 John that the apostle tries to offer hope to believers, primarily doing so by offering them an assurance of their faith. And he does this, as Pastor Luke has preached in several sermons, by offering them evidences of their faith or tests of the faith. You see, if you are of the faith, if you have salvation in Jesus Christ, well, then you're going to believe these certain set of things. And you're going to let that bear fruit in your life, and you're going to display these certain deeds in your life, these evidences or tests of the faith. And by my estimation, that's, that's a brilliant move by the apostle because he doesn't just give them something watered down and say, well, just believe. Just, just keep going. Just believe, and you know it'll work out okay. But he gives them arguments full of substance so that when people look at the arguments, they can take encouragement in who their father is. But then he also gives the reader the opportunity to fail the test, doesn't he? That way, those who might cry Hosanna from one side of their mouths on Sunday yet crucify him on Friday might get a better picture of who their father truly is. Because if you are of the faith, you're purchased by Jesus Christ, there will be an evidence of your faith. If your faith is in Jesus Christ alone, the Holy Spirit, the seed of God, will begin a work in your life and provide an evidence of his residence in your life. Now, I know I haven't even read this morning's sermon text. Now, already there's a point up here. There will be an evidence to the Spirit's residence in your life. And I did this on purpose because this phrase, I'm I remember that it's going to be on repeat. I'm going to say it a lot. And so I want this before you, even before you read the sermon text this morning. Think about this. The Holy Spirit is in your life. There's going to be an evidence of his residence. Oftentimes, whenever we move into a house, one of the, one of the first things we do is we try to make it our house. So for my, for my wife and I, we move a lot. One of the things we do is there's a few set of things that we have moved with us. We like to get those out, set them up as decoration, put them on the walls, we like to go out to a garden and get some plants, make it seem a little bit more lively. Those things provide an evidence of our residence there in that house. And so I think the same is true if you just walk around your neighborhood, if you look at the houses, that you'll start to get a pretty clear picture of which houses are vacant and which ones are occupied. And if you pay attention to those evidences of occupancy that you find, evidence of residence, then you might be able to start draw be able to start drawing conclusions about who lives inside or what they're like. So try this on your way home, not in a creepy stalker kind of way, but just by means of making observations, look at what you see and decide if there's any plausible um, conclusions that you can draw. For instance, if there's toys in the front yard, then you know that there's a good chance that there's a family that lives there. Perhaps they have some small kids. If you see a sign in the front yard, well, then maybe you can gain a, an idea of their political ideology. I don't think, I see it snowing now, I don't think anyone's going to be out working on their car, but if you were to see, a, if you were to see a, a hood open, you might think, well, that person's mechanically inclined, or at least they wish they were. So these things can give an evidence 
what the residents are like. Even the kind of car that you see in the driveway might give you some clues. If you see a Jeep, maybe they're an outdoor enthusiast. If it's a work vehicle, then you might be able to start thinking, okay, well, this is their occupation. If they have a giant van, then you can probably understand that they homeschool. I don't say that as a knocking homeschoolers. We homeschool our children. If there is any complaints, then Pastor Luke will fill those. But all these things to say that, much like these examples, there is an evidence to the Holy Spirit's residence in our lives. When the Holy Spirit moves in, the work of the Holy Spirit will be displayed in our lives. And so particularly this morning, we're going to focus on the evidence of love. So let's go ahead and read our, our sermon passage this morning. It's 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you, um, in the, somewhere just in front of you in the Pew Bible. It's page 1022. And let's go ahead and stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. That's 1 John chapter 3. And I'm actually going to start reading in verse 9, just to give us a little bit of a context. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 9 reads, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the very beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because... His own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This church is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I began reading in verse 9 because I wanted us to have a little bit of the flow of context and of John's argument here, particularly the contrast between verses 10 and verses 11. Verse 10, the apostle says that those who do not love their brother are of the evil one. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. But then in verse 11, he says, in light of it, because from the very beginning we have been told that we should love one another. Now, because God's character is unchanging in nature, we know that from the very beginning of creation, God's desire is that mankind would love one another. But if, if you read this passage and you think about the, the message of John, I think it's clear to see, and most commentators come to the same conclusion, that when, when John says the beginning, what he's talking about is not the beginning of time, but the beginning of the gospel proclamation, the beginning of the church. Whenever Jesus comes onto the stage, he begins changing the conversation from one of obedience 
to one of love. In Matthew chapter 22, one of the Pharisees comes to Jesus and asks him, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds to him, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now the question the Pharisee asked was a question that focused on the need for obedience, but Jesus' answer to the Pharisee was an answer that focused on the need of love. He goes so far as to say that all the law and the prophets, that's all the Old Testament scriptures, they depend on what? Obedience? No, he says love. All the Old Testament scriptures depend on love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. They rest on love. And so Jesus is changing the conversation here because he's getting to the heart level. Because at the heart level, we we find that ultimately we obey the ones that we love. For obedience ought not flow out of a begrudging submission, but out of a heart of love and gratitude. I think sometimes in parenting, we have to remind ourselves and our children of this, that Obedience with complaints and with arguments isn't really true obedience at all. Obedience begins with the heart, and we obey the ones that we love. Jesus, in his first sermon that we have recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he he begins his ministry talking about the heart level. And so whenever he talks, he doesn't just talk about murder, he talks about hatred. He doesn't just talk about adultery, but about lust. And then later on in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, he says, You have heard what it was said, that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that, you're, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. You want to be like your father in heaven, Jesus says? Love your enemy. It's easy to love the lovely or love those who are loving to you, but to be like your father in heaven, Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. One final example of Jesus speaking to the necessity of love is given clearly to his disciples during the Last Supper in John chapter 13. And I I think it's interesting here. Jesus awaits until Judas has departed, and so we have the 12 left, those who are faithfully following the Lord, those members of the church who will be representatives and leaders of his church. In Matthew chapter 13, sorry, John chapter 13, he gives them this command in verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, it's no longer just an implied extrapolation from the Old Testament that you ought to love your neighbor as yourself, but it's it's an explicit command given by Christ to his church. Love one another. 
as I have loved you. And it's the same message that the Apostle John writes in verse 11. For this message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John's already told the readers several times at this point that there were some teachers who went out from them who were not of them, different antichrists who are seeking to twist and distort the gospel message. And John's plea to them over and over again is pay attention to the gospel message at the beginning. It's not changed. And so I believe it's the same thing that's happening here. Don't accept any substitutions or perversions to the gospel message. Listen to what was said by Jesus himself. And so you want to know why those who don't practice righteousness and those who hate their brothers are not of the faith? It's because it's inconsistent with the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when the Holy Spirit seed, when the seed of the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer that John spoke of in verse 9, there will be an evidence of his residence. So that makes you think about obedience again. If God is primarily just after our obedience, our submission to him, if what he really wants is just begrudging submission or whatever form it might take, when Jesus gives this new command, love one another as I have loved you, how on earth, if your only heart is to try to be obedient, how on earth are you going to fulfill that command? How can you do that without a changed heart? Much of the world, I think, believes that we Christians have to keep God's list of arbitrary rules so that we can somehow obtain his favor as if God is somehow on this large ego trip just wanting to make sure he maintains his position as God and he just doles out the commands and we have to submit to him so he can continue to fill and control. But that is not the message of the gospel. You see, God needs nothing from us to add to himself. And our submission is not for God's benefit, but to ours. Our submission to God is not for his benefit, it's for our benefit, the God who created this world, who created you, who created your very soul, knows intimately what you were created for, his glory. And to function in that gives you life. It gives you hope. And so submission to the one that you love, coming out of a heart of love and gratitude, not for God's ultimate benefit, but to ours. And so if we have the love of Christ living within us, then we will want to obey his command when he says, love one another as I have loved you. And not only was the apostle John in the room when Jesus gave this command to his disciples, but the scriptures say that he was at his side. And in the gospel of John, John refers to himself over and over again as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this disciple... He was no stranger to the love of Jesus Christ. And so whenever Jesus gives this command, love one another as I have loved you, I don't think the greatness of it was lost on John. And in verse 16 of the text we just read this morning, he reminds us of what Jesus did just hours after giving the disciples that command. He gave his life for us. By this, John says, we can truly know that we are loved, that we can have confidence and love itself. The Son of God, he loved us so much that he gave his life for us. And so it's amazing to think on that fact, to reflect on that fact, to see the glory in that fact, to take hope in the fact that Christ died for us. 
But if you compare that truth to the command of Jesus, well, then his command becomes a very sobering one, doesn't it? Are you willing to love like Jesus loved? Verse 16 reads, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Are you willing to love as Jesus loved? Are you willing to love the way that Jesus loved to the extent that you'll lay down your life for the person to your left or to your right? And maybe that's too easy because you probably sit down next to someone you actually care about. So what about the person in front of you or behind you? Are you willing to give your life for their benefit? Are you willing to love as Jesus loved? And now I'm, I'm, my hope and my prayer is that this is only a question that remains a hypothetical one, that we never have, have to physically make this decision. But I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't. And I don't, I don't say that as a dramatic response on reflecting on the state of our country, our declining morals and values, though there's a case to be made within that. I say that because of the history of the world. I say that because I know that the hatred of mankind is baked into our very DNA. And so don't be surprised, believers all over the world, where that question is not a hypothetical question, but a daily reality. Let's look back at the end of verse 11 through 13. It reads, we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Last week, as we looked at the text, we saw that there were those who have the Holy Spirit within them. And because of it, they will practice righteousness. That's, again, what I'm calling an evidence of his residence this week. But we also saw that there are those who are not of him, who will make a practice of sinning. They're of the evil one. So again, that doesn't mean that anyone who claims to be a, a Christian, a believer, will be perfect in their lives, but it does mean that their lives will be marked by a hatred of sin and of repentance whenever they fall into it. But let's keep these things in mind as we think about these verses that we just read regarding the second generation of mankind already committing murder. It says we should not be like Cain, and then John explicitly says that he was of the evil one. I think most of us are familiar with the history of Cain and Abel. Cain came to God, and he offered to him an unacceptable sacrifice. His brother Abel came, and he gave a good sacrifice, and it was accepted by God. And this made Cain very jealous. But God stops him and says, Cain, don't you know if you offer what is good that you too will be accepted? But if not, sin is crouching at the door and it's just waiting for an opportunity to control you. Now, Cain doesn't listen to the word of the Lord. And he finds himself talking to his brother Abel in a field and he opens the door to sin and sin begins to take control so that jealousy becomes hatred and hatred becomes murder. And Cain murders his brother. Why, John asked in verse 12? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. 
See, not only will people without the Holy Spirit within them practice unrighteousness, they will actually despise true righteousness. Cain wanted to be accepted by God in his own terms. He wanted to be the ultimate authority in his life. And we know that all of us are born with that same inclination towards sin. We want to come to God on our own terms. It's, it's, it's born not just into our DNA, but in our very souls. We naturally practice evil, and therefore our trajectory is evil. We're born in sin. And we begin sinning, we begin performing works of unrighteousness, and we're paving our way towards our own death, our own damnation, our own judgment. By our evil works, our trajectory is death, and that's the only position that we know. And that's why we need the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus' death on the cross took all those sinful deeds and nailed us in our sinful position up there with him, providing forgiveness. But he does not leave us there dead in our sins. That's why in Easter we celebrate the resurrection, because in rising up from the dead, he makes us partakers in his new life so that we have a new position to live from. And by the blood of Christ, our trajectory is no longer one of evil, but by his good deeds being placed down before us, our trajectory is hope, it's life, it's glorification, it's eternal life. And the leading of the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and ensures that we stay on that path towards righteousness. We need the leading the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we will live consistently because we've been changed not by our own merit, but by the merit of God himself. So if that's true, don't be surprised when the world hates you. The world that's all those outside of historical, doctrinally sound Christian faith will naturally be inclined to go their own way. And they might even acknowledge the existence of God just like Cain did, but they're going to want to come to him on their own terms. So Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and all the other slew of false Christianity out there, they're going to want to come to God by their own terms, convincing themselves that there's no righteousness needed outside of that which they can perform themselves. They don't realize they need the given righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the bent of the world. And the world will hate true righteousness whenever they see it. Why did Cain kill Abel? It's because his very existence was an affront on the way that he viewed the world. The righteousness of Abel stood in condemnation of the unrighteousness of Cain. So let me back up for a second. What I'm not saying, for a little bit of clarification, I'm not saying that every single person who is not a Christian will be physically a murderer, a a spiteful, mean, wicked person by personality. God made all of us from every race, ethnicity, tongue, tribe, nation, culture, subculture. He made all of us. He made us all in his image. But yet we know at the fall something went terribly wrong, didn't it? Our ability to perfectly imaged back to God, his own image was twisted and marred. 
And so while a sinful man still has the capacity of being in his image to love and to care for others, good personality will do nothing to atone for sin. I think we all know someone who is just a genuinely likable person, a, someone that we like to be around, even though they're not a believer. But here's the thing. On your deathbed, whenever the doctor comes to you and says, the only thing that will save you is a new heart, an award-winning smile, a great personality will do nothing to save you, just as it will do nothing to atone for your sins. getting back on track as we look at the world, I think it's evident that, spiritually speaking, the world is not a sweet place. And morally speaking, it's not a nice place. And without the power of the gospel, death and hatred reigns. Yet the righteousness of God is both the cure and the condemnation for sin. Let me say that again. The righteousness of God is both the cure and the condemnation of sin. So church, brothers, sisters, don't be surprised that the world hates you. We've been saved by the righteousness of God, and there will be an evidence of his residence in our lives, most notably by the way that we love one another. They will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. And so his righteousness, not ours, is being displayed in our lives by the way that we love each other, will mean that we're true ambassadors, not just of the message of hope, the cure for sin, but we're also going to be ambassadors for the condemnation of the unrighteous world around us. So don't be surprised the world hates us. The righteousness given to us by Christ stands in condemnation to the unrighteousness. And they don't want to hear or acknowledge the truth in verses 14 and 15 that they themselves abide in death let me read those verses for us. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, God judges according to his own righteousness. God judges according to his own righteousness, and again, that begins at the level of the heart. That's why he can take hatred and murder and judge them on equal footing. If hatred is the seed, then murder is the fruit. And we see the seeds of hatred sprinkled all around the world. In the case of Cain, he murdered his brother for it. Now we find ourselves back in verse 16, where the work of Christ stands in direct opposition to the work of Cain. Verse 16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Cain, in all of his hatred, and all of his unrighteousness, sought to take the life of his brother who was made righteous. But Jesus Christ, true righteousness himself, gave his own life for the unrighteousness. Praise God. Righteousness himself gave his life for the unrighteous. And so I think the exhortation here is that if you have the love of Christ within you, let it bear fruit. Don't grow weary of doing good. 
Rather, love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. If the Holy Spirit resides in your soul, well, don't grieve him by trying to hide the evidence of his residence to the world. The Holy Spirit will be at work in your life. Will you submit to him? Will you submit to him when he says, child, this, this has got to go. This whole room has got to be gutted and remade. The Holy Spirit will be at work in the life of the believer, but brothers and sisters, are you willing to let him work unhindered in your life? And let me take that a step forward. Are you willing to be an active participant in your own sanctification? Again, not by adding any works of your own righteousness. Those don't exist. You can't remodel a house with tools that don't exist. But are you willing to abide in the love of Christ? Are you willing to abide in the forgiveness of the Father and the instruction of the Holy Spirit? I think most of us have our hang-ups there at that last point. But if we take joy in the love of Christ, if we take joy in the forgiveness of the Father, we should also take joy in the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's consistent. So where should you begin? With a message that you've heard from the beginning. Love one another. Love one another. Love as Christ loves you. Forgive as you have been greatly forgiven by the Father. That's the kind of love that can give you confidence. It's the kind of love that can give you hope to the point that you might be even willing to lay down your life for a brother or a sister. Why? Because it's consistent with the love and the life of Jesus Christ that lives inside of your soul. It's consistent. And a life lived by consistency with the gospel will not be one of self-service. It'll be one of displaying the love of Christ. Let's read our final verses this morning, 17 through 18 again. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in work or talk, but in deed and truth. Now, before I exhort you on doing this better, let me tell you how I've seen you as a church congregation do this well. Whenever my family was still in Senegal, hoping to come back to the U.S., we were hoping to come back for just a six-month period of time. And so, as normal, it's kind of hard to find someone who's willing to sign a lease for just six months. And so I was trying to do that from Senegal with zero response from anyone. Everyone must have thought I was like a Nigerian prince offering funds. Like, I promise I have the down payment. No one would respond to me. And so I made the need known to the church. <clears throat> very quickly, both from within this church and also Waukesha City, our, our sister church, there were people began looking for my family a place to stay. And before too long, we, we found a place at a reasonable price. And so I went to some of my friends in Senegal, and I told them this. And I'd, they had known that I was having a very hard time finding a place to stay. And so I told them that, hey, this has been provided. The church found something for me. So they said, Michael, great, but what about, what about all the furnishings? Where are you going to sleep? Do, do, you, do you have any of that thing, any of those things? 
And I said, yeah, you don't understand. The church has got that covered too. They have a list going around, and people are signing up to bring beds, their couches and, and tables. And church, whenever we walked into the door of our house, there were sheets on the bed, there was food in the cupboards. You loved us not just by word and talk, but in deed. And I went back, and I was telling this to some of my, my friends in Senegal. And one of them specifically said, Michael, that's not what Americans are like. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what we know about Americans is they like their stuff way too much. They're a lot more selfish. They're not as generous. And they're not as hospitable as us here in Senegal. I didn't argue the point, but I said to him, if you're serving Jesus here in Senegal, there's some things in your life that need to look different than the culture around you, right? The same thing is true in America. He said, OK, I get that. I understand. And so because you loved us, not just by word, not just by saying, oh, I hope that works out for you, but because you loved by deed, the truth of your love was made known. And 4,500 miles away, the gospel-changing work of the, the power of the gospel was made more evident and clarified. It's the work of the gospel. They will know that we are disciples by our love for one another. But I do feel like I need to encourage us to continue on that path to love one another Indeed, and in truth, not just by word alone, because I feel like in Christian circles and even in this own church that there is that temptation to do so. You want me to tell you the number one example of loving by word and talk alone uttered within church walls probably every single week? It's this. Sorry to hear that. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And I don't know how many... How, how to tell you how cut to the heart I was this realization that there's been so many times that I've promised to pray for a brother or a sister but then fallen short. That's loving only by word and talk, not in deed and truth. And so let me encourage you, if you're able, and you, you see a brother and sister in need of prayer, if you can, stop and pray. Let's love each other Indeed, in truth, prayer is a wonderful thing that we can do for one another that displays our love for one another. And I understand that sometimes you might, might not be able to stop them right there, but market it in your calendars, put a, a note in your phones, whatever it needs to be done that you remember to pray for the brothers and sisters that we might show our love to one another in that way. Yet let me also exhort you not to promise prayer alone if you have the means to be the answer to the prayer. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, are you going to close your heart to them? It's not consistent, the Apostle John says. It's not consistent with the, the one who's living and dwelling inside of you. It's not consistent with the way that Christ first loved us. And so if you see your brother and sister in need, give generously. You see that they need an ear to talk to. Make the time to listen. Maybe they need help moving and you're of able body. Just make your time available and help them move. If you see that 
They've missed a meal. Invite them over for a meal. Buy them some groceries. You see, if you know that they're behind on, on bills, but they've been working earnestly trying to provide, but they're behind, then maybe you should give generously and not just out of your leftovers, but perhaps in a way that makes you change the rest of your plans for the rest of the week. Are you willing to love the brothers and sisters as Christ first loved you sacrificially? If you see someone in need of a skill that you have, maybe you can offer to help them or even train them so that they may be better suited to continue on themselves. Now, our our leading in that by the Holy Spirit is to be a means of showing Christ's love to this world. So it does not mean that the Spirit is going to lead us to want the things from our brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean that I'm entitled to what you have because I can see that you can give it. That's not the leading of the Holy Spirit. The leading of the Holy Spirit is that you are concerned with how you might be better portraying the life of Christ to the brothers and the sisters and those around you. Because if the Holy Spirit lives within you, you'll be a recipient not only of his love, but a means of showing it. So throw back the curtains. Turn on the lights. Open the door as an open invitation for anyone who might pass by to know the substance of your love. That they might be able to gain an idea of who resides inside. A better picture of God, the reason for your love, the, the great love that Christ first had for you might be displayed through your life. So church, let us not love one another in talk and, de- in talk and word alone, but in deed and in truth. Let's live consistently with the message of the gospel, showing evidence to the world around us of the residence inside of us. Let's pray. Lord, we, we praise you again as king. And we praise you for the kind of king that you are. That you first loved us. When we were yet your enemies, when we were paving our paths towards destruction and judgment and death, Lord, you gave yourself for us that we might know the righteousness of God. Christ himself became our righteousness. We had no means of hope that we could afford, but you paid the price for us, so we thank you for that, God. And with that truth being so clear, God, I pray that you would help us to live consistently with the truth that the Holy Spirit would be manifest in our lives, that we'd be in submission to him, joyfully, joyfully seeing that as we submit to you, we are made more like Christ. We thank you, Lord, for making us partakers with Christ and his life. God, we thank you for your sacrificial death for us on the cross and your resurrection. God, I pray that the hope of that would be on our lips and we live consistently throughout the rest of this week and also our lives. And then I pray, amen.